This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chetka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Immunizations are one of the greatest success stories in modern medicine, and it's estimated that they've saved more lives and prevented more disabilities than any other medical intervention. They're also extremely cost-effective and much less costly than the diseases they are meant to prevent. Their benefits far outweigh the very small risks they carry. Yet, there are individuals who choose to believe that immunizations are potentially harmful, and they refuse to receive the recommended immunizations and are opposed to having their children immunized. We'll be discussing immunizations, the myths surrounding them, and techniques which can increase immunization rates with Dr. Robert Jacobson, a pediatrician and expert in immunizations from the Department of Pediatrics at the Mayo Clinic. Bob, nice to see you back. Great to be back. Thanks for having me. Well, what's new in the world of immunizations? Anything, uh, anything going on right now? <laughs> oh, the most exciting things. We actually have dozens and dozens of manufacturers all around the world organizing to produce vaccines against COVID-19, the pandemic that has changed our lives dramatically and has resulted in the U.S. alone uh, of well over 200,000 deaths and millions of cases. The cost of this pandemic is just enormous. And we have governments like the United States government, the United Kingdom, working closely with manufacturers to quickly bring to bear all of the technology we have in the 21st century to produce vaccines against COVID-19. And it is moving forward. We actually have eight vaccines right now in what we call phase three trials. That means it's been tested and found safe in animals. It produces antibodies and is safe in adult humans. And now we are launching trials to see if it actually prevents COVID-19. And we have eight such vaccines in those trials right now. Well, I was going to ask you about the COVID-19 immunization later, but since you brought it up now, let's talk about it right now. My understanding is there are some companies that are using a little bit more novel techniques to develop this uh, vaccine. Yes. In fact, because of the problem of producing a viral vaccine that creates immunity um, requires that you actually produce something that will mimic the antibody or the coating of the virus, but not have any of the danger of the virus. And manufacturers have approached this a variety of different ways. One is where we actually take a piece of nucleoprotein RNA that would actually carry the information into the body to make that antibody. These mRNA vaccines are, are very exciting. We've never used one routinely in our population here in the U.S. or around the world to fight off a disease. It's only been used experimentally. One had been developed for SARS, for example, but not used in this country. We have adenovirus, a tame, mild virus, not the one that gives us the adenovirus that we see circulating in the community, but a, uh, one developed in the lab that can serve as 
a vector or carrier for this information. These adenovirus vaccines then would be live vaccines we would get. They wouldn't make us sick with adenovirus, but they would very temporarily replicate several times to produce the immunity we need from the protein causing an antibody to form in our body. So I've never heard this question asked before, but I've been curious. So we're going to have a variety of vaccines maybe to choose from. Can we assume that they're all going to be equivalent in efficacy or is there potentially one that's going to be better than the other? And are we going to know? And is the first one that comes out the one that everybody's going to get? Actually, throughout the course of vaccine development, different vaccines had been developed sometimes at the same time. The problem with vaccine manufacture is you can go all the way from the lab to human trials and then it fails. And that's happened repeatedly. So it's great we have eight vaccines in phase three trials. Perhaps only one, two, or three will actually turn out to be effective. We've had other vaccines have gone all the way to these trials to fail miserably. Back in the 1960s, we had two vaccines actually got as far as phase three trial and then were licensed, a live measles vaccine and a killed measles vaccine. It took three years of use of the killed measles vaccine for us to discover this was not a good vaccine, didn't deliver good protection, and had some significant side effects. And so at that time, we went from having two vaccines to 1966, where we only had one. We actually, in the U.S., use nine influenza vaccines this year. Not one. Uh, we have the flu mist or nasal spray. We have two vaccines designed just for adults 65 years and older. One's an adjuvanted vaccine. In our country, we rarely use adjuvanted vaccines among adults. The other is just a, a very large dose of the standard vaccine that we give adults. So we're talking about some comfort in using several vaccines against one disease. We, we know how to do that. Now, what everyone should know is that we don't stray far from the clinical trial that proved the vaccine was safe and efficacious. We don't automatically assume that a vaccine only tested in adults will work in children. We don't assume that a vaccine safe in non-pregnant females is safe in pregnant females. We don't assume that a vaccine that wasn't tested in people 65 years and older should work just as well. Frankly, our recommendations for the use of the vaccine will stick very closely to the trials that showed it safe and efficacious, and only with further study will we branch out. Okay. Realistically, when do you think immunization for COVID is going to be available for the general population in large numbers? I think we're really talking about a year from now. I mm -hmm. think we first need a or several vaccines that have been proven safe and actually prevent COVID-19. And then we need to roll it out carefully, knowing that one, it's very hard to ramp up and produce 7 billion doses of vaccine for the whole world. And we're all in this together, but we're going to need to protect some people first with the vaccine while we continue to study what makes it work, when does it not work, is it, uh, does it continue to prove safe? And most likely we're going to take our highest risk healthy adults, that is our healthcare workers, and offer them the vaccine and then move forward. 
I would like to say, oh, we'll have a vaccine tomorrow, but you and I have uh, worked in primary care long enough to know that the biggest problem with a very successful vaccine is we immediately use it all up and then go a year or two without the supply. And that's happened over and over again. Uh, most recently, um, uh, Shingrix, a recombinant zoster vaccine, very successful, but not available for our use for perhaps a, a year and a half after it was licensed because of that production problem. Now, the neat thing about having all these companies all around the world committed to ramping up and making the vaccine is that we've got the world's focus on the production problem, and that's going to speed this process up. So instead of talking about decades to get a vaccine, we're talking about okay. months to years. Well, let's leave COVID and talk about immunizations in general. Uh, we'll start with children. Which immunizations are important for children to receive? Well, I would say the 16 vaccines that we recommend to children are important for children to receive. We actually have vaccines licensed in this country that we don't recommend. Just because a vaccine is safe or effective doesn't get it on our list of recommended vaccines. For example, in this country, we have a vaccine that's safe and effective against the plague, but we don't vaccinate a single child against it. We have a vaccine safe and effective against smallpox, but we don't vaccinate a single child. Our vaccines are actually based on need, alternatives, efficacy, and safety. So from the first vaccine that a baby gets, the hepatitis B vaccine, to the last vaccine that we give an adolescent, the meningococcal ACWY vaccine, we are talking about vaccines that have proven need. So when I recommend the hepatitis B vaccine at birth or the pneumococcal conjugate vaccine at two months of age, we are speaking from a deep need that we don't have an alternative for, for which this va vaccine is safe and effective. So when parents uh, sometimes hesitate with vaccines and say, oh, I don't want my child to get all five today. I want my child just to get one. You pick it, Dr. Jacobson. I say to that parent, that's not fair. They're all needed. They're all important. I'm recommending all of them to you. That's like telling me you came to the clinic today with only one car seat and you have four toddlers and I'm to pick which toddler gets to ride home in the car seat. So it's not a problem giving kids multiple immunizations in one visit. That's true. The neat thing about these phase three licensure trials and tr children is that they actually test all of the vaccines are routinely given at that time, plus the new one. And one of the rules that the FDA has and has stuck to is that vaccine not only has to be safe and effective, but it can't hurt the other vaccines. It can't make any of those ineffective, nor can it create safety problems when they're given together. So in fact, the vaccines that I give at two months, and we're talking diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis, we're talking polio, we're talking pneumococcal conjugate vaccine, we're talking the Hib vaccine, we're talking about another dose of hepatitis B, and we're talking about rotavirus. When I give all those vaccines at once, that's based on mountains of evidence that they're safe and effective. That's not a whim of mine, that's not just a convenient thing to do, that's actually science at work. Okay. So how about adults? Which ones should they receive? Assuming that they've completed their childhood vaccines, now need to continue to get the flu vaccine every fall across the U.S., every single one of us. In addition to that, adults need to get the pneumococcal 
polysaccharide vaccine, the 23 valent vaccine at age 65. But at age 50, every one of us needs to complete the two dose uh, shingles vaccine, this recombinant zoster vaccine that two doses over two months actually gives close to 99% immunity against shingles. This is an incredibly powerful and good vaccine that really prevents a debilitating condition that strikes people in middle age that can put them out of work for six weeks or leave them with months and months, if not years of chronic pain. In addition to that, every 10 years, every one of us needs a tetanus diphtheria booster. Tetanus, we have no herd immunity. Everyone in your home can be vaccinated against tetanus, but when you get a puncture wound or you get a bite from an animal, nobody else's protection helps you against tetanus. It's in the soil, it's in, it's in the dirt, it gets into wounds, and you need your protection. You only need it once every 10 years, but you need it. The diphtheria protection, well, it sounds like a disease of yesteryear, and that's only because we vaccinate. When uh, the Soviet Union fell apart, in fact, the vaccine program fell apart, and we started to see outbreaks all across former Soviet Union with diphtheria. And the cases were just a plane right away. Thank goodness we had maintained our resistance against diphtheria with that tiny little dose we give every adult every 10 years. Now, those are the big ones that all of us need, but I do encourage adults to find their old childhood records and really make sure they're caught up. There are some health conditions that put you at risk for diseases for which we need to vaccinate with additional vaccines. And frankly, adults may still find that they need the vaccines that for some reason they didn't get as children, like the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine or the varicella vaccine. All right, let's tackle a topic that I know you battle probably on a daily basis, the uh, anti-vaccine movement. Uh, when did this begin? When did this become a cause for a lot of people? Well, frankly, it began with the first vaccine. When Jenner had developed and announced to the world how you can use cowpox to prevent smallpox, he immediately met resistance. People, as a rule, don't like the idea of being healthy and yet having to take a medicine or being healthy and having to do some preventive strategy. It, it feels foreign. It feels like, leave me alone. I'm good enough right now. Well, even back then, we saw resistance. And as smallpox continued to ravage the world, at one point across the world, 400,000 people died a year from smallpox died a year. In fact, it's felt in the last hundred years of smallpox uh, that the world lost 500 million people to smallpox. That's how bad it was. One out of seven children in Russia died of smallpox. That's how bad it was. Even so, countries started making it mandatory that everyone get the smallpox vaccine. That's when the anti-vaccine movement just blossomed uh, and they rallied and they demanded that the vaccinations be put to a halt. When Louis Pasteur first vaccinated five-year-old Joseph Meister against rabies after he had, was bitten by a rabid dog, Louis Pasteur was nearly run out of Paris for that. Uh, and people decried him for experimenting on humans, even though he saved Joseph Meister's life. 
So there's always been this resistance, uh, this fear, this distrust, this anger. We continue to see it. Uh, when I was coming out of uh, residency, we saw it directed at the whole cell diphtheria tetanus pertussis vaccine. Later, we saw it directed against the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine. More recently, we've seen organized efforts against the human papillomavirus vaccine. Frankly, every vaccine has been attacked by the anti-vaccinationists who will often tell you they aren't against vaccines. They just want safe, effective vaccines. Well, that's where I agree with the anti-vaccinationists. I want safe and effective vaccines too. And thankfully, we have the science and the regulation that creates the opportunity for me as a primary care doctor to recommend with vigor uh, our vaccines uh, routinely for children and adults. All right. Let's debunk some common myths about vaccines. Common one that I've heard is vaccines contain mercury. It is true that we used a form of mercury with our multi-dose vials. It was called thimerosal. It was a ethyl mercury. Unlike its cousin, methylmercury, ethylmercury didn't appear to be poisonous. We used it as a preservative for the vaccine to make sure the vial vaccine could be used over and over again and not grow something in that liquid. But fear of methylmercury and laws that just simply stated you can't have so much mercury in products led the government to work with manufacturers to remove thimerosal from all of the children's vaccines. And that was accomplished. Uh, in fact, the only thimerosal we use right now in the United States is in the multi-dose vials for influenza vaccine. Oh, turns out when we removed all that thimerosal, it did absolutely no good. We didn't reduce any neurotoxic conditions. And it turned out with better science, we learned the ethyl mercury never accumulated even in premature babies who might have been getting several doses of thimerosal-containing vaccine. We did manage to make vaccines more expensive because we got rid of our multi-dose vials. We did manage to make vaccines sound scary. A lot of people joined in the anti-vaccine movement because of fear of mercury, when in fact that form of mercury was not causing a single problem. Okay, here's a common one. The MMR vaccine can cause autism. Yes, this was touted by a person in England, Andrew Wakefield, who had been surreptitiously paid by a law firm to uh, develop evidence against the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine. In fact, this man was also at the same time developing his own form of measles vaccine, and he fabricated evidence and published it in The Lancet claiming that he had found evidence that measles and measles vaccine virus was associated with autism. In fact, the article was retracted. His co-authors, uh, for the most part, denied knowledge of the cover-up and, and the lies, but this has taken off like a firestorm across the the world and resulted in a lot of children being injured, if not killed, by some of these diseases that the MMR vaccine prevents. And yet, study after study across the world, conducted by many researchers, many governments, has never shown a link to autism and the MMR vaccine. One note, the rubella part of the MMR vaccine actually pre prevents congenital rubella syndrome. We used to suffer with congenital rubella syndrome in this country before we had the MMR vaccine. Um, it turns out that 
congenital rubella can, depending on the timing of the infection of a pregnant woman, actually result in autistic syndrome in the newborn child who's already afflicted with other elements of the congenital rubella syndrome. So in fact, the MMR vaccine is a preventive of autism and not a cause. Okay. Here's a common one. You should not receive immunizations if you have an allergy to eggs. You know, we used to worry about that, particularly with the influenza vaccine, because every year when manufacturers need to develop the new vaccines that will handle the strains of influenza that are now circulating, they have to grow them in hen's eggs. So it was natural for people to think that the vaccine would actually cause anaphylactic reactions, serious allergic reactions in those getting the vaccines. But actually, very large studies of people with serious egg allergies has shown they have no more risk for having an allergic reaction to a flu vaccine than anyone else. It turns out it's just not a risk factor. Here at Mayo Clinic, we routinely vaccinate our patients with serious egg allergies, both at the school or in the clinic or in our mass clinics without any special observation or waiting period or any sort of concern for uh, an additional risk of allergy based on the evidence. Now, that's the progress of science, that you may think one thing and you continue to study it and you learn something else. And here we've learned egg allergies are not a problem for vaccine recipients. All right, I'll give you one more. And this one I hadn't actually heard from a patient, but I read it on the internet, you know, the source of all accurate medical information. And I think there's some uh, validity to this one. Vaccines contain microchips, which allow the government to track the whereabouts of an immunized person. Deny that one, doctor. <laughs> you know, one of the things that amazes me is this sense that the government is that organized and could really sneak in expensive <laughs> microchips into vaccines that we are routinely injecting, and yet we can't do contact tracing in this country for COVID-19, and our public health is stymied by inability to really figure out who uh, exposed who to a particular conditions. In fact, every measles outbreak tends to cost the local county and the state public health uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars and sometimes millions because of the difficulty in tracking. No, we have no microchips in the vaccines. We can't track people that way. It is just uh, another conspiracy theory and frankly, a bizarre one, uh, yeah. but it, it goes to show how far people, people's fear of vaccines will take them. And I can't imagine who'd want to know where I go anyway, but uh... <laughs> all right, Bob. Lastly, can you give us two or three key points of importance regarding immunizations? Yes. For us as providers, as us clinicians working in the field, we need to remember these three things. Our routine and at-risk vaccine schedule is based on them being safe, effective, necessary and without alternatives. So when we make our recommendations for vaccines, we're doing it on a firm platform of science. That's number one. Number two, you need to know your recommendation is the be all and end all of getting your patients vaccinated. Community education campaigns don't work. Giving brochures to patients to read don't work. When you recommend a vaccine, that's what works. And that's what your patients are looking for. When you offer the vaccine as a choice, rather than as a recommendation, you've shot yourself and your patient in the feet. 
you've ended up making the vaccine sound like a choice and not a recommendation. You made it sound like an option, like you'd, would you like fries with that instead of something you strongly believe in? You wouldn't say to a person who's driving you to the clinic, would you like to stop at that stoplight? Or you wouldn't say to your child, what are your thoughts about the car seat? You make a strong recommendation. It's very important you don't lose your voice in the office. Use your recommendation. Tell your patient what you want the patient to do. Don't make it sound like an option. Bob, can you say a little bit about the HPV vaccine? I understand the age range for uh, recommended immunization is a bit different now. Well, actually, we're still recommending that every child get this vaccine and complete the series with the recommended age 11 to 12 and with strong encouragement to begin as early as nine years to complete the vaccine. We have catch-up through age 26, and more recently, the U.S. Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices made a a change in the recommendation that offers it with shared decision-making for those 27 through 45 years of age. Now, that means that with a conversation with your clinician, a patient could consider whether they are at increased risk and should get the vaccine at that age group. But I tell you, a new study just published this year out of Sweden, uh, studying over a million and a half adults, showed the vaccine prevented cancer, dramatically reduced the risk of cervical cancer, but the vaccine was most effective in those who had completed the series before 17 years of age. In fact, the power of the vaccine is with its early administration. The older adolescents and young adults are at highest risk to be exposed to the virus, and waiting until you're 26 really loses the whole power. But uh, if your patient finds herself or himself in a situation where you and he or you and she believe they are at increased risk and have not received the vaccine, well, now you have permission from the ACIP to proceed with a shared decision to vaccinate. And because of the way the ACIP phrased this, insurance companies need to cover that vaccine. Well, we've been discussing the benefits of immunization with Dr. Robert Jacobson from the Department of Pediatrics at the Mayo Clinic. Bob, thank you so much for being here. I know you're a busy guy, especially this time of year. So thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please subscribe. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. Stay healthy and see you next week.